This morning, uh, we are taking an intentional break, an intentional pause from our Sermon on the Mount series. And uh, the reason why we are doing that uh, is in order to celebrate the start of Holy Week. Um, And so this morning, we are going to be celebrating and commemorating Palm Sunday, which is why your boy is wearing green today. Okay, there's a... There's, there's layers to this, and uh, so this morning we're going to be celebrating Palm Sunday uh, because that is where we are in the church calendar, and uh, to do that, our passage today is going to come from Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, Matthew 21, 1 through 11, if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And if you are with me, say amen. Amen. Here's what it says. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill, everyone say fulfill, what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They came, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Verse 9, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna. Everyone say, Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, we we come before you this morning. And uh, Lord, I am so grateful for the beautiful day that you have given us. God, I am so grateful for the fact that we are alive. Lord, help us to not take that for granted. God, help us, remind us again, remind me, Lord, even as I preach your eternal word, remind me of how temporary I am. Lord, you do not need me. You don't need my gift. You don't need my voice. You can literally take me out right now and your kingdom would move forward. God, you don't need any of us. You are the only eternal one. You are the only anointed one. You are the one that was the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We come before you, and what we need today is not to be reminded of how great we are, of how unique we are, of how much potential we have, but we need to be reminded of who you are. We need to be reminded of your glory and of your name and of your will and of your kingdom. And so, Father, we come before you, and God, I ask you right now, and in the three years I've been here, Lord, we, we've never had a chance to cover the, the Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, and Lord, there's so much in this passage. God, over the past three years that we've gone through as a church, God, I, I'm looking at this passage from a completely different perspective, and I am reminded again that you are the king that we needed. Maybe not the king that we wanted, but the king that we needed. And so, Father God, I am asking you right now in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit that you would fill me, that you would lead me, that you would guide me. I pray that you would work here in this place. Be here among us. Help us not to waste this time, but help us to be reminded of who you are and of what you want to do in us and through us. Like we learned last week, I pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we would be your instruments that carry out your will on this earth. Lead us, Lord. Guide us, Lord, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Now, this morning, um, before I jump in, uh, what I want to do is I want to set the stage a little bit. And uh, I want to summarize this story a little bit. Because maybe for you, uh, this is one of your first times here at church. You've never heard of this story. You don't know 
about Palm Sunday. You don't know about the triumphal entry. And so I want to set the stage a little bit before we jump into the text. What we find here in this passage is what the Bible refers to as the triumphal entry. Now, in church history, we refer to it as Palm Sunday. But one of the reasons why we have to be careful with that is because not all scholars agree that this happened on a Sunday. There's a good chance that it actually happened on a Monday, which is why the Bible doesn't refer to it as Palm Sunday. It just refers to it as the triumphal entry. But what's interesting about this story, though, is that in many ways, it's Jesus, uh, his coming out party. See, up to this point, he had been hidden. He, he, he wanted what was called the, uh, to keep the messianic secret. And then all of a sudden, he decides that he is going to declare to the world who he is. And if you look at the biblical timeline, this is essentially the last time that Jesus is seen publicly before he is crucified. This is the last time that they will see him publicly in a positive sense. The next time they see him, he is on a cross. He is on trial, then he is on a cross. And so this is a very significant moment in the life and ministry of Jesus, and here's why. Because as he is entering into the city, all these different people are surrounding him. All these different groups of people are coming alongside Jesus, surrounding Jesus, and what's interesting is that each one of them have a different plan and agenda for Jesus. They all have their own agenda for what Jesus needs to do and for who Jesus needs to be. The disciples have their own agenda. The crowd have their own agenda. The Pharisees have their own agenda. The Herodians have their own agenda. The Romans have their own agenda. And so you see all these different people, all these different groups, and Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and they all have their own plan and agenda for Jesus. And so Jesus is entering Jerusalem knowing that literally in a few days he will be put on a cross and sacrificed in the place of his people. And the very people who are yelling crown him in this passage are the very people who will be yelling crucify him in the next passage. And so that sets the tone for where we are in this story. And with that context in mind, what we're going to do today is we are going to look at this passage under two headings. We are going to begin today by looking at the king we wanted, and then we are going to conclude by looking at the king we needed. So the king we wanted and the king we needed. But I want to begin this morning by looking at the king we wanted, the king we wanted. You see, in this passage, there are two things that Jesus does that aligns perfectly with what the people around him wanted. There are two things that he does, and when he does them, they think, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been expecting. This is exactly what we need him to be. And so under this first point, we're going to look at the two things that Jesus did that aligned with their expectations, that checked their boxes. And then under the next point, we're going to look at the two things Jesus did that didn't align with their expectations that didn't fulfill their agenda. But let's look first at the two things he did that did fulfill and meet their expectations. In this passage, we are told that the two things Jesus did that really got the people around him excited, which ended up creating this crowd that was surrounding him, the first thing he did was the praise he received. The first thing is the praise he received. And then the second thing, was the plans that he made. So the praise he received and the plans that he made. Let's look at the first thing. The first thing Jesus does that was right in line with what they expected him to do was the praise he received. Now, if you're following along in your Bibles, what you will see is that immediately before this story that I just read in Matthew 21, right at the end of Matthew chapter 20, we are told that Jesus and the disciples are being followed by a large crowd and they are going from Jericho to Bethany, to the area and region of Bethany and Bethphage, which was a suburb of Jerusalem. And as they are traveling along the road, we are told that there are two blind men who are on the side of the road. And the two blind men are calling out to Jesus and they say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Now, for us, that means absolutely nothing. Two blind men who need to be healed, big deal. But here's why it was a very significant deal. 
Because the title that they use to describe Jesus is the son of David. Not only do they call him Lord, which is already significant enough, but then we are told in the passage that they refer to him as the son of David. And the reason why that title was so important is because if you go back to the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God reveals himself to David and he informs David that one day God will send a king, God will send a Messiah in the line of David who will establish an eternal kingdom. This king that will one day be sent will be the Messiah. He will be the king of Israel. And what's different between him and David is that the, king, the kingdom that he will establish is an eternal one. It's an everlasting one. And, and, and essentially what we are told in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that this king will be the son of David. The eternal Messiah king that will lead the people of God for eternity. That is the title that these blind men are using to describe Jesus. That is a very significant title that they are using. Everyone fully understands the weight of all this. But just because they said it doesn't mean that Jesus has to receive it. And up to this point, he had not received it. Up to this point, he had gone out of his way to hide his ministry, to hide his identity. And then all of a sudden, nobody expecting it, Jesus, he, the people are trying to tell the men to be quiet. They think they are distracting Jesus. Jesus pauses, he focuses on these men and says, yes, what do you need? So for us, that's not a very significant moment. Many of us would read right past that story and not think anything of it. But this is the first time ever that Jesus is publicly acknowledging that he's the Messiah. This is the first time ever that Jesus is publicly acknowledging that he is the king of Israel that has been promised all the way back since 2 Samuel chapter 7. Not only does he receive the title, but then they ask him, can you heal us of our blindness? And then he actually does it. So by doing that, he is essentially conforming, confirming that he is who they say he is. I am him. And not only am I him, but I'm going to prove I am him by healing two men who have been blind since birth. So, so this was a very significant moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. And as a result of what Jesus does, there would have been two groups that would have reacted to his behavior in this story at the end of Matthew chapter 20. The first group would have been the crowd because we are told that a large crowd was already following Jesus. And we're going to see here that part of the reason why a large crowd was already following Jesus was because Jesus, according to John, had just resurrected Lazarus. That's a pretty big deal. That draws people. When you bring someone from the dead that's been gone for several days, that's going to draw an audience. So that is the crowd that is following Jesus. And so the first people that would have reacted to what Jesus says and does would have been the crowd. The crowd would have been like, wait a second, who did, who did he say he was? Wait, this is him? So, so this, it's Passover week, we're all heading to Jerusalem, and on Passover week, this man has just claimed that he is the Messiah we've been waiting for, that he is the son of David, that he is the king that we all so desperately want and need. So the first group that would have reacted is the crowd. But the second group that would have reacted would be his disciples. Because his disciples were like, all right, here we go, Finally. We, we've been waiting. We know who you are. We know that you are the Messiah. We know that you are the Son of God. We know that you are the one that has been prophesied. But up to this point, every time we've tried to tell people, you have told us not to tell people. And now all of a sudden, you come out of nowhere and say, I am he. And so the disciples are pumped. The disciples think we're about to take over this whole thing. And you know that the disciples were thinking that way because not too long before this story, uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, they approach Jesus with their mom. And they are convinced that Jesus is bringing a political, geographical, physical kingdom. And they're like, hey, when we take over this place, can we be on your left and on your right? And Jesus says, not only do we know, not know that time, but you cannot because it's not the type of kingdom you think it will be. What it'll cost you is not what you think, James and John. So the disciples think this is our time. We are about to take over. 
We're going to wipe everybody out. The Herodians, the Romans, we are going to set our political kingdom here on earth. And not only did they think that here in this text, but even later on, after Jesus ascends, they try to do it before Jesus ascends. Right before he ascends, he says, hey, at this time, are you going to set up the kingdom here on earth for Israel? So not only do they think about it and hope for it on Palm Sunday or triumphal entry, but then even before the ascension, they are still assuming that Jesus is going to bring a physical, political, geographical kingdom. So, so you feel the, the momentum starting to build. But here's the thing. Jesus shows that he's the king that we wanted, not just because he takes the praise of the blind men. But then, literally a little bit later, in the text that we just read, we are told that he also receives the praise of the crowd. Now, there are four things that the crowd say that were very significant titles or phrases that are used. And by Jesus receiving them, said a lot about who he was and what he would come to do. One of the things that the crowd say is, just like the blind men, they call him the son of David. They, they, hear, they overhear what they call him. Jesus accepts it, and so then they repeat it themselves as he enters Jerusalem. But not only do they call him the son of David, but they also start screaming out the phrase, Hosanna, 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 which literally in that language meant, save us now. Save us now. The problem is, though, is that well, they're not thinking that Jesus is showing up to save them from their sin, but from their enemies. They don't think Jesus is showing up to save them from uh, 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 Satan and sin and death. No, no, he, they think he's going to save them from the Romans. So they're saying save us now. But what they think he is coming to save them from is not what he's actually coming to save them from. So they're calling him the son of David. They're asking him to save us now. The other thing that they're saying to him is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the reason why that phrase is significant is because literally what they're saying is you are not only the Messiah, but you are God's representative here on earth to carry out God's plan and God's will. And then the fourth thing they're saying to him, according to John's account, is they are calling him the king of Israel. But the most fascinating part is not just that they are saying it, but that Jesus is receiving it. For the first time in all his ministry, in his 33 years on earth, he is receiving all the things that are true of him. And that's what we see here in this passage. You see, but it's not just the phrases that they use. It's also the actions that they carry out. Because we are told in the text that not only are they saying those things, but they are also doing certain things. We're told in the text that they take off their cloaks and they put it on the road before him. And the reason why that's significant is because Jesus, essentially what, he, what they're saying by doing that is they're saying, we submit to your rule and to your sovereignty and to your authority. That's what it meant for you to put your cloaks on the road before a king. But not only are they putting their cloaks on the ground, they are also waving palm branches. And the palm branches in the Old Testament represented victory. It, it, it literally represented joy and liberation. And so in their mind, not only are they saying, save us now by screaming out Hosanna, but by waving the palm branches, they are convinced that Jesus is the one who's going to bring the victory and the liberation that they so desperately wanted. So this is a very significant moment. So one of the reasons why Jesus comes off as the king that we wanted one of the reasons why Jesus fulfills our, human, our humanly expectations is because of the praise he received. You see, but the second reason why Jesus comes off as the king that they wanted is not just because of the praise he received, but it's also because of the plans that he made. You see, in this story, Jesus, it, it, it seems random. It almost seems like all this just kind of happens by accident. And, and, and this crowd starts to form, and Jesus is like, oh, Chucks, okay, I guess I'll, we're already here. Go get me a donkey, and, and let's go. See, if you're anything like me, when I first came across this story, I thought it was just some random 
set of events. It all just, he just happened to be at the right time, in the right place at the right time. But the reality is, we see that Jesus is the king that we wanted, not just because of the praise he received, but because of the plans that he made. Jesus was fully in control of this situation. When we look at scripture, when we, when we zoom out and look at the entirety of scripture, what we discover is that he fully planned and orchestrated this situation. So let me show you how his plans were made way beforehand. The first thing is, I already mentioned it earlier, is the power that Jesus displays. Because what we're told in John's account, the other accounts don't tell us this, but we are told in John's account that right before, in John, it's John chapter 12 where the triumphal entry happens. In John chapter 11, we are told that Jesus, he resurrects Lazarus right before all this happens. But when you read the account in John chapter 11, something that you might miss is that it says right at the end of John chapter 11 that because Jesus raised Lazarus, from that moment on, the religious leaders decided to kill him. The event that triggered the crucifixion, the betrayal, the trial, according to scripture, was the resurrection of Lazarus. When he resurrects Lazarus, the response is so overwhelming that the religious leaders say, enough is enough, he has to die. So Jesus, get this, he stopped Lazarus' funeral knowing full well that by doing so, he was starting his own. He knew that this was the moment that was going to trigger the religious leaders. He knew. And so essentially from that moment on, there's a, there's a disconnect with the crowd that was around him. On the one hand, you have the, the crowd who want to crown him. And then on the other hand, you have the religious leaders who want to kill him. From that moment on, people had to make a decision about Jesus. Either you crown him as Lord or you kill him as a liar and lunatic. That's what we see. So, so the first way that we see Jesus making plans and orchestrating this whole thing is that he knew what miracle had to happen immediately before this. See, but it's not just the power he displayed. It's also the path that he took. You see, because the path that he took determined the people that followed him. We are told in the text that he's coming from Jericho and he intentionally passes through Bethany and Bethphage, which to us mean absolutely nothing. But if you look at a map, the, the Bethany and Bethphage were to the east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Essentially, they were a suburb of Jerusalem. Jesus intentionally walks through that area. He takes that specific path. At Bethany, he resurrects Lazarus. But the reason why he goes that way is because that was where he did most of his work. He didn't just do ministry in Nazareth and in Galilee, but he did a lot of his ministry right there in Bethany, in that region. So, so he intentionally and strategically walks through that region, knowing full well that not only was he going to resurrect Lazarus, but all these people already knew who he was. That's why if you look at it, I think we can um, misconstrue what happens with the donkey when Jesus says, go and get the donkey, and when they ask, tell them that the Lord needs it, there's a good chance that the reason why he says that is because the person who owned the donkey knew who Jesus was. Because that was the region where he did his ministry. So it wasn't like he was fully sovereign, like he saw some donkey somewhere in the ether and said, go look for the donkey. It's gonna... No, it's that Jesus already had pre-established relationships in this region. So he knew what miracle to perform. He, he knew uh, what path to take. And he strategically goes through that region because he knew that by going that way, he would essentially collect the biggest amount of people. See, one of the mistakes that I think we make with this story is that we assume that Jesus and the disciples are just alone until they get to Jerusalem and then the crowd was waiting for him. But if you look at what the story says, the crowd came with him. Many of the people in Jerusalem didn't even know who he was because it says at the end of the text that a lot of the people were asking, who is this? So the crowd wasn't waiting for him. The crowd was coming with him. So again, we see that Jesus is fully in control of this situation. Every little thing he did was on purpose. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't random. So we see the plans that he made both in his power and in his path. But I would say that the third way we see the plans that he made 
is in the prophecy he fulfilled. See, Jesus was so in control of this situation that not only was he in control of the things that happened that day, but he was actually in control in the things that happened 500 years prior. That's how in control he was. That's how much power he had. That's how long he had been orchestrating and planning this whole thing. Okay? So according to Scripture, there's actually three passages that Jesus fulfills in this text. We're going to only look at two right now. We're going to look at the third one later. The first passage that Jesus fulfills in this text is actually the one that Matthew refers to. In Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah, get this, 500 years prior to this event, five centuries prior to this event, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had a vision, and the vision was that one day God's Messiah, God's King, would enter into Jerusalem. He would be worshipped and hailed by his people, and he would specifically be riding a donkey. I'm going to read it to you instead of just telling you about it. Here's what it says in Zechariah 9. 9 through 11. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, everyone say behold. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. Now, now, don't miss this. I want you to see that the king that's coming isn't going to bring chariots, horses, and bows. He's going to cut them off. He's going to remove them. Okay, don't, don't miss that. We're going to come back to that. And he shall speak peace. Everyone say peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, referring to the blood of the covenant here, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So how will the prisoners be set free? Through the blood of his covenant. So, so Jesus here is literally not just controlling the events of the day. He's not just on a daily plan, on a monthly plan, on a yearly plan. He's on a century plan. He is carrying out things that no one even knows are happening. We see God being fully sovereign and doing things that we don't even know are happening. And in, and in John chapter 12, which is where John gives us his account, it says that the disciples didn't even understand what was happening. Even the people that were walking with him and talking with him, even the people who knew who he was, did not understand what he was doing. So, so the first passage that Jesus is fulfilling, a 500-year prophecy, was Zechariah 9. And most of you knew about that one. But what you didn't know is that he's also fulfilling another prophecy. In Daniel chapter 9, there's a section in Daniel where essentially it moves from you hearing all these cool stories about Daniel being brave in Babylon, and then it just gets real weird. And it gets real prophetic all of a sudden. He just starts talking about end times, right? It gets real revelation-y real quick. And one of the things that Daniel says in chapter 9 of his book is he talks about, he, he, he's reflecting on the day of restoration, which was the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he predicts that from the time of the restoration, one day God will send a king that will enter Jerusalem on a very specific day. So I'm going to read to you the passage. It's going to make absolutely no sense to you, and that's okay. It took a lot for me to understand it. And then I'm going to read to you uh, what this scholar that died a long time ago uh, hypothesizes. So let's look at Daniel. Daniel 9, 25 through 26 says this. Now listen and understand. Everyone say understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, everyone say the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be re rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed. Don't miss that. Appearing to have accomplished 
Nothing. And then, if that's not enough, because we're going to unpack this in a second, he then predicts that Jerusalem itself will be destroyed. He says, and a ruler will arise whose armies, he's talking about Rome here, will destroy the city and the temple. But, but here's what I want you to see. This, this author, uh, decades ago, Sir Robert Anderson, and he's not just someone who he wrote about this, but there's other commentators who I really respect who quote him. So Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, The Coming Prince, decided to do the math. He was a mathematician. He tried to do the math. He, he started un, trying to understand. He started looking at calendars and maps and, and, and dates and stuff that I, way above my pay grade, right? He started looking at this stuff. And in his book, The Coming Prince, he did the math. So I'm going to read this to you. And it's going to be a little bit complicated, but I'm going to explain it. Using the date of restoration as March 14th, 445 BC. So that's the date he said as the date of restoration. Through the prophet Daniel, the Lord predicted that the time from Artaxerxes' decree ordering the rebuilding of the temple until the coming of the Messiah would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That is, it's going to get a little complicated, but just follow me. That is 69 weeks total. But the literal translation is seven weeks and 62 sevens, seven being a common designation for a week. In the context of the passage, the idea is 69 weeks of years or 69 times seven years, which, again, let me summarize it, comes to 483 years. Since the old Jewish year was 360 days, then the total was 173,880 days. So it started in March 14th, 445 BC, and it ends, according to Anderson and other scholars, it ends on April 6th, 32 AD, which according to Jewish cal calendars was the 10th day of the month of Nisan, which according to Anderson is the exact date that Jesus enters into the city. The first and only time he presents himself as the king of the nation was on April 6, 32 AD, which was the 10th day of the month of Nisan. Isn't that crazy? So, so here's what's even better. It gets better. Everyone say it gets better. It gets better because not only does Jesus fulfill Daniel chapter 9 to a T, okay, so he not only fulfilled the passage that we know about, the Zechariah 9 one, he fulfills passages we don't even know about. Daniel chapter 9, okay? But what's crazy is that because Jesus enters on the 10th day of Nisan, that day was a very important day on the Jewish calendar. As you prepared yourself for the Passover, this was started all the way back in the book of Exodus. On the 10th of Nisan, here's essentially what the people of Israel would do they would go out throughout the, the hill country of Jerusalem and building up to the 10th of Nisan, what the, the priests would do is they would go out and they would choose lambs that were pure and without blemish. And what they would do is they would pre-select them and they would put them in pens all throughout the region of Jerusalem. And on the 10th of Nisan, don't miss this, specifically on this day, the Jewish families would go out to these pens and they would choose the lambs that would die for their sins on the day of atonement, on Passover. They would literally choose the lambs, sorry, not the day of atonement, on Passover. They would choose those lambs. They would go out and, and according to law, one lamb can die for up to 10 people. So you and your family would go to these pens. These lambs had already been declared pure. They had already been declared clean. They had already been declared without blemish. You would go to the pen and you would choose your lamb, which would die in your place. So get this. Don't miss this. On the day that the Israelites were bringing their lamb home for sacrifice, God brought the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world home. Come on. On the exact day that they are choosing their lambs, God sends the lamb. And what's crazy is if you look at the story, if you look at the entire gospel narrative, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was 
a priest. He was from the tribe of Aaron. He was from the tribe of Levi. So when he sees Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was literally declaring him pure. He was declaring him without blemish. He had already been declared clean. He had already been declared pure. And then he walks in on the same day that the Israelites were choosing their lambs. That's how in control Jesus is. And this is why this story has been so encouraging to me. Because I'm looking at this story after years of following Jesus, after years of leading churches, and I'm just encouraged by the fact that he is in control and I am not. That he will get glory and his plan will be fulfilled. His will will be done. And he's doing things that we don't even know about. It doesn't take my knowledge of something for God to fulfill said thing. Come on. So, 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 so let me pause here for a second before we move on to the next point, because I think there's something we need to reflect on as the, as organizationally, as the American church and individually as American Christians. Okay. The first thing that I think we need to take away from this passage is that we as the American church have to be careful when we think we understand what God's will is. We have to be careful when we take our plans and put God's blessing on it. Be like, hey, God wants this. And one of the things that we talked about week one of the Sermon on the Mount series is that part of the reason why we should abandon the plays we've been running is because the plays didn't work. In the American church, we have tried to use worldly means in order to accomplish godly ends. And it hasn't worked. So instead of making disciples, we're in leadership development. Instead of expanding the mission of God, we're building the kingdoms of men. And so this week, for those of you who uh, follow me on social media, I, I posted a quote that jumped out at me. Because it summarized the, the cultural moment that the American church finds itself in. I'm, I'm going to read this to you to show you where we are as a church. This is from a, a missiologist named Michael Frost. He says this. He says, the proof is in the pudding. After half a century of church growth, growth theory, essentially the megachurch movement, after a half a century of church growth theory, the church in the West has shrunk. And... After 30 years of leadership studies, we're seeing an unprecedented number of leadership failures. Where else can we turn? He says, so can you or we stop trying to do Christian ministries with tools from the fields of marketing, management, and psychology now? Church, it didn't work. It didn't work. We tried it. We gave it an honest to God try. When I got here three years ago, I tried it. I tried it. Like, we're going we're gonna to do this. We're going to use worldly principles and, and management tools and leadership development and church growth theory. I'm going to try it. And on the other side, the church is smaller. And left and right, people like me keep falling. In places of leadership. It didn't work. I think that one of the things we have to take away from this passage is that the only plan that God will bless is his plan. Let's give ourselves to the making of disciples, not the training of leaders. The Bible barely mentions leaders. It talks about disciples. It talks about deacons and elders. And witnesses, it, does, it doesn't talk about leaders. The mega church model failed. And that's why I told you several, a few a couple years ago when I had my almost burnout moment and almost left ministry, I realized, oh, I want to leave ministry because I'm not actually doing ministry. I'm doing my will. I'm doing human will, the, the, the humanity's will, not God's will. Jesus isn't in this. 
Because this isn't what Jesus told me to do. So the first implication is organizational for the entire American church. But I would argue that the second implication is individual. And here's what I mean. There are people here in this room who you might be praying for something. There are people here in this room who you, 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 you've been wrestling with God in some area. And in your mind, you know exactly what needs to happen. You're not praying, Lord, your will be done. You're praying, my will be done. You're absolutely convinced that you know what needs to happen in that person's life, in that situation, in that area. And man, you're praying about it, but it isn't praying the way we talked about last week. It's praying, God, not, it's not, hey, have my will conform to yours. It's, Lord, have your will conform to mine. Because, Lord, I know. I know what needs to happen in this situation. But if this story shows us anything, is that not only is God's plan greater than our plans, but his ways are greater than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. God is doing things that we aren't even aware of. I came across this quote by Dr. John Piper, and I think it summarizes this point. He says this. I love this. Every day and in every circumstance, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, but you might be aware of only three of them. So, so when we go to God and try to tell him with what to do in that specific situation— there are 9,997 other things that God is up to. We're only aware of three of them, but we know what the will for that, plant, for that area is. Jesus was the metaverse before the metaverse. This brother had layers before layers. He, he's up to something that we don't even know about. And so when we pray, the reason why we have to pray your will be done, not my will be done, is because he's God and we're not. He's sovereign and we're not. So I'm not sure what you're praying about. I'm not sure what you're asking God for. I know he hears you. I know that if you're in Christ, he loves you. But what I need you to understand is that there's a lot of jobs. When I look out, there's, there's certain jobs where I'm like, man, I'm, just, I'm not qualified. I can never be an NBA player. I'm not tall enough. I can't jump high enough, right? There's certain jobs. Like there's, there, you might look at my job and be like, I can never stand up every week and talk in front of people. I am not qualified for that job. Well, take whatever job you think you're not qualified for and multiply it by infinity and that's how unqualified we are to be God. If there's ever been a job description that we can't handle, that we can't carry out, it's his. And if this story teaches us anything, like I said last week, is that even when we don't know what his hand is doing, we can still trust his heart. So, the first thing that we see this morning is we see the king that we wanted. Um, and as we conclude this morning, the last thing I want to look at is I want to look at the king that we needed. You see, in the first point, under the first heading, we looked at the two things that Jesus did that fulfilled their expectations. We looked at the two things that Jesus did that aligned with what they thought he should be doing. But then under this second point, what we're going to do is we're going to see two things that Jesus did that did not align with what they wanted. Two things that he did that did not fulfill and satisfy their expectations. And there are two things, according to this passage, that he did. The first thing that failed to meet their expectations was his transportation. And the second thing was his destination. Let's look at both. The first thing Jesus does that does not fulfill their expectations is his transportation. Now, here's the thing about transportation. On the one hand, he had to choose a donkey in order to satisfy the prophecy, right? It, it had to be a donkey uh, that he fulfilled, that he chose in order to satisfy the prophecy. But by choosing a donkey, Jesus was communicating something. By choosing a donkey, Jesus was actually trying to say something to not just the disciples, but also to the crowd. 
Because by choosing a donkey, what he didn't choose was a chariot. By choosing a donkey, what he didn't choose was a horse. Heck, even a, being on foot would have been better than being on a donkey. As a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Stanley Harwas, who is a professor at Duke University, here's what he says. He's, he's a believer. He works at Duke University. In his commentary on this passage, here's what he says. He says, when you look at how Jesus handles this, it's almost as if he is making a mockery of the whole thing. You see, because this wasn't the first time that a king walked in to a city where people praised his name and threw their cloaks on the ground. This wasn't the first time. And what Stanley Horowitz argues is that it's almost like when you look at how Jesus does it, it's almost like he's making a mockery of the whole thing, of the whole spectacle. He, he's using the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. And one of the ways that he does it is that the brother is not just on a donkey, but the passage says that he's on a colt. So get this. This is how embarrassing this would have been. He's not on the adult donkey. He's on the baby donkey. So, so this is what you see. I'm not making this up. He most likely, because it's a baby donkey, would have had his feet touching the ground as he comes in. So, so let's say you're at the battlefield and, and there's a king on the one side and you're like, oh, oh, but my king's coming. You better get ready for my king. You're not even ready for my king. Oh, he, he's going to, ooh, you better get ready. And then you turn around and your king shows up on a big wheel. Shows up on a little kid bike, ringing the little, the little bell with his feet on the ground. Like, if your king shows up that way and his feet are touching the ground, that is not a threatening stance. That does not put fear in people's hearts. The dude's feet are touching the ground. And so what Harawas argues is that the reason why Jesus does it is because he's mocking the whole thing. He's showing the foolishness of human wisdom, the powerlessness of human effort. He's putting the whole thing to shame by entering the way that he enters. And to make matters worse, if you think about it, we read already earlier that he shows up not to use chariots, horses, and bows, but to remove them. There's no sword on him. There's no bow. There's no horse. He, he essentially is showing up not in order to kill, but to be killed. He is showing up not in victory, but in vulnerability. He is showing up not to slay his enemies, but to be slaughtered by his enemies. He's showing up not to take a throne, but to be put on trial. Jesus is showing up not to take a crown, but to carry a cross. So the first thing he does that completely and utterly disappoints them is the transportation he uses. But the second thing that he does that I would argue disappoints them even more that shows he's not the king that we wanted, but the king that we needed, is that he goes, it's the destination that he chooses. It's not just his transportation, it's his destination. Because according to Matthew, Jesus, the next place he goes to is the temple. And when he gets to the temple, we are told that he doesn't go there to worship. He goes there to turn tables. And he says, my house, talking about himself, will be a house of prayer and of worship. He goes to the temple. And so the reason why the destination was really, really not what they expected is because what they expected, remember what we said, was a physical kingdom. It was a geographical kingdom. It was a political kingdom. So in their mind, Jesus shouldn't have gone to the temple. He should have gone to the Roman fortress. If you look at a map of Jerusalem, there are multiple gates that Jesus could have chosen. He, cho he chooses the Golden Gate. Coming down from Mount of Olives, he chooses the Golden Gate. The Golden Gate, which led him directly to the temple. But if Jesus was doing what they expected him to do, he wouldn't have gone through the Golden Gate. He would have gone through the Lion's Gate, which would have taken him directly to the fortress of Antonia, which is where the Romans were set up. 
Those were the bad guys, Jesus. You chose the wrong gate and you ended up at the wrong destination. But why does Jesus not go to the fortress of Antonia? Why does Jesus end up at the temple of Jerusalem? Well, the reason why is because Jesus knew that their problem was not ultimately horizontal. Their problem was not ultimately political. Their, their problem was not ultimately external. Jesus knew that their problem was internal. Their problem was vertical. Their problem was spiritual. And so the reason why he doesn't go where they wanted him to go is because he's the king that they needed, not the king that they wanted. He goes to the temple because he knew that ultimately their greatest problem was their wickedness. It was their sinfulness. It was their spiritual nakedness. It was their brokenness. Their greatest problem was not political. It was spiritual. And so he goes to the temple. And so he disappoints them in two major ways. Not just in the transportation that he chooses, but he disappoints them with the destination that he ends up at. And what's interesting is when you look at the passage, not only because of what he does, because of his transportation, because of his destination, because he is the king we needed, not the king we wanted, we're told that both groups missed it. We know that the crowd missed it because at the end of this passage, it says, the question is asked, who is this? And the crowd responds with, oh, he is Jesus, a prophet from Nazareth. So you could tell they didn't fully understand who he was because that statement is not that it's not accurate. It is accurate, but it's inadequate. It's accurate. He is a prophet from Nazareth, but he's so much more than that. So it was accurate to a degree, but it was inadequate because he was so much more than that. So the crowd missed it, but we're told in John 12, verse 16, that even the disciples missed it, that even they did not understand what was happening. And I think the question that we have to wrestle with this morning is this. Who is this? Or a better way to put it, Jesus specifically asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answer. And then he follows it with, who do you say that I am? I think the question that we have to wrestle with this morning is, who is Jesus to you? Not to the church, not to your parents, not to your spouse, but who is Jesus to you? Is your view of Jesus accurate? That's one question. And the second question is, is your view of Jesus adequate? Because a lot of us have an accurate view of Jesus. That to the degree that we acknowledge him, it's correct. But our view of Jesus is inadequate. And here's the thing. And let me, let, me, let me step on some toes here a little bit, okay? Here's the problem. It's easy for us to look back at these first century Jews and think about how primitive they were and how blind they were and how could they have missed it. But the thing that absolutely ticks me off in the, the world we live in is how many Christians, instead of viewing Jesus as King Jesus and his kingdom being a spiritual kingdom, in our cultural moment, we're convinced that Jesus came to be a political king to bring about a geographical political kingdom. There's, there's that, one of the reasons why I am not on social media anymore. I'm not on Twitter anymore. I'm not on Facebook anymore. I literally have only kept Instagram to share other people's quotes. One of the reasons why I got off is because it frustrates me to no end when there are certain people who I follow on Instagram who are Christian people who love Jesus and they will quote a Puritan and then they will quote a Bible verse and then they will quote Charles Spurgeon and then immediately after in their story, the very next thing is a political quote about how politics should look. And they put it at the same level. Like it's just the same truth. Biblical truth is the same as political truth. We're still doing it today, church. Wow. We're not placing our hope in Jesus. We're placing our hope in government. And that's both sides of the aisle. We're placing our, our hope in politicians. This is not the type of sermon you preach on the Sunday before Easter. Because <laughs> most people in my position, wanna, we want to fill the church next week. But I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm here to tell you the truth. 
Listen, Jesus did not come to meet our agenda. Jesus didn't come to expand uh, our kingdoms. Jesus didn't come to be the mayor. He didn't come to be the governor. He didn't come to be the Supreme Court justice. He didn't come to be the president. Jesus Christ came to be the author of salvation. He came to be the creator of men. He came to be the sustainer of creation. He came to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, church. Come on. So I'm not sure how adequate your view of Jesus is this morning. But I need you to understand that Jesus didn't come to be your political mascot. He came to be your savior and your king. You see, all throughout scripture, we see Jesus reacting to these political conversations again and again. It's there, but we just don't want to see it. In Joshua chapter 5, we are told that this mysterious man shows up to Joshua, the commander of the Lord's army. And any commentator worth their salt will tell you that the commander of the Lord's army is Jesus himself. And so Joshua goes up to Jesus. He takes his sword out because he doesn't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. And essentially he says, whose side are you on? And the commander of the Lord's army says, essentially, neither. He says, behold, the commander of the Lord's army is here. That's in Joshua 5. So we then fast forward to Matthew 21. The people here want to know whose side are you on, Jesus? Are you on the Israelite side or are you on the bad, bad Romans side? And Jesus again says, neither. And then in the very next chapter in Matthew 22, Jesus is approached by the Herodians. He's approached by the Jews, the religious leaders, and they want to trap him and they show him a coin. And they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar, yes or no? And we talked about this during the politics series, but what Jesus says is absolutely masterful. He says, hey, give to Caesar what's made in his image, which is a coin. But give to God what's made in his image, which is what? Us. He says, don't ever give Caesar your heart. Don't ever give Caesar your soul. Don't ever place your hope in Caesar. Put your hope in me, Jesus. So again and again, here's why Jesus never answers the question. Because some of us, the real political people in here, oh, well, that's just cowardly. He's got to, is it yes or no? Whose side are you on, Jesus? Here's the reason why Jesus never answers the question. Because they were asking the wrong question. The question shouldn't be, hey, Jesus, are you on my side? The question should be, hey, Jesus, am I on your side? The question shouldn't be, hey, Jesus, are you on my team? The question should be, hey, Jesus, am I on your team? It's not, hey, Jesus, are you doing my agenda? It's, hey, Jesus, am I doing your agenda? The question shouldn't be, hey, Jesus, are you bringing about my kingdom? The question should be, hey, Jesus, how can I bring about your kingdom? So he doesn't answer the question because they were asking the wrong question. And to this day, we are still asking the wrong questions. We've missed it. They missed it, and we've missed it. And shame on us for missing it, because we have the whole story. You see, here's the thing about God. And this is why God ultimately gets the glory and the praise. God is so good that he did not send the king that we wanted. He sent the king that we needed, church. And not only did he do that, but God knew if our greatest problem was political, he would have sent a politician. If our greatest problem was financial, he would have sent a financial advisor. If our greatest problem was psychological, he would have sent us a counselor. But since our greatest problem was spiritual, he sent us a savior, church. He knew that if he got rid of the Romans, nothing would have changed. He knew. He knew that. See, see, God knew that our greatest problem was not the Romans or the Herodians or the Samaritans or the Canaanites or the Amorites. Listen, church, today, our greatest problem is not the conservatives or the liberals. It's not the Republicans or the Democrats. Our greatest problem is us. We're the greatest problem. And we are so sinful and so wicked that we can't admit that. 
So we blame it on someone else. And Jesus doesn't end up being our, our answer because we're asking the wrong questions. Here's the thing, church. The first time Jesus shows up, he shows up not as a, as a king, but as a servant. The, the first time Jesus shows up, he shows up not as a ruler, but as a savior. The first time he shows up to Jerusalem, he shows up not as a lion to reign, but as a lamb to be slain. But one day, Everybody say one day. day. But one day. Remember what I told you. I said Jesus didn't just fulfill two Old Testament passages, but he's actually foreshadowing another Old Testament passage. In Zechariah chapter 14, the very book we quoted earlier, in Zechariah chapter 14, we are told that one day God is going to send his Messiah. He's going to send his king. And that Messiah is going to land on the Mount of Olives. And when he does, the Mount of Olives is going to split in two. Get this. He's going to go through the same gate, the golden gate, which we've talked about this in the past, that now, because that region, that area is owned by Muslims, the Muslims have put a brick wall there, essentially. They put concrete there. They don't believe in Jesus, but just in case. They they, they put concrete there. (laughs) So there's concrete on the wall now. Get this. The gate is covered in concrete. And right in front of it, they put a cemetery Why? Because they know Jesus is a priest and a priest is not supposed to go by a dead body. It will make them unclean. So they don't believe in Jesus, but just in case he shows up, they think a little bit of concrete and a little bit of dead bodies are going to stop our king from coming back. But what the Bible says in Zechariah 14 and then reconfirms in Revelation 19 is that when Jesus arrives, he's going to enter through the same gate. And when he arrives, he's not going to show up in vulnerability. He's going to show up for victory. He's not going to show up on a donkey. He's going to show up on a horse, it says. He's not going to show up to be slain. He's going to show up to slaughter his enemies. He's not going to show up in peace, but in power. He's not going to show up to retreat, but to reign, church. That's my God. That's our God. And the best thing about this story, which no commentator I looked at mentioned, but I think it's something that is so easy to overlook. Jesus, essentially, when you would look at the Old Testament times, in the time of Jesus, the only time a king would do what Jesus does in this passage is after they won the battle. You, you wouldn't come into your city on a horse, on a steed, with trumpets and, and, and branches and cloaks. You wouldn't do any of that because no king was dumb enough to celebrate before the victory was won. But just to show how powerful our Savior is, just to show how incredible our God is, he celebrates the victory before the battle was even fought. He's already celebrating because God doesn't view time the way we view time. God is outside of time. It says in Ephesians that before the foundations of the earth, God had already predestined. But in order for God to predestine, he already had to win. And so the reason why Jesus celebrates the the victory, he has the parade before it happens, is because from his perspective, he had already won. The the captives had already been set free. The enemy had already been defeated. Good had already triumphed. That is the king we worship, church. That is the king we worship. And so the question that you have to wrestle with today, the question that you have to wrestle with today is, is my view of Jesus Christ accurate? One, maybe today is the day that you place your faith in Jesus and you have an accurate view of Jesus. But for the people here who know Jesus, the second question is, is my view of Jesus adequate? Who am I actually worshiping this morning? Because if Jesus is who he says he is, he's going into your life saying, crown me or kill me. 
But if you're a consumeristic Christian that shows up to church once every two months, don't serve, don't give, don't disciple, that's not the Jesus you're being called to be, to follow. He kills consumeristic Christianity at its root. Either you crown me as Lord or you kill me as a nobody. But you can't put me in the middle. Who am I in your life? So is your view of Jesus accurate? And if it is, is your view of Jesus adequate? Because according to my Bible, according to God's gospel, Jesus didn't come to satisfy our worldly expectations. But what we are told is that he came to save us from our sinful condition. So we have a lot to praise God for this morning. But here's what I want you to praise God for right now. I want you to praise God for the fact that God in his goodness, in his sovereignty, in his love, he sent not the king that we wanted, but he sent the king that we needed. Amen.